All right, the last um, couple weeks that I've preached, we've looked at uh, God's love for us. We've looked at God's love for the Son. This week, we're going to look at God's love for creation. Um, There are different errors people make depending on how they see themselves in relation to creation, as well as how they see God in relation to creation. And many errors, I've said this in some of my other sermons, but many errors can be avoided by understanding the proper relationship between God and creation. So for the Christian, uh, we look at the text, and we see what it says about God. But we also look at the text to see what it says about us. Uh, But we also look at the text to see what it says about everything else. Everything. Uh, The Word shows us how to rightly think in all areas. And I remember being in college, that's when I got saved, I was a freshman, and I remember being in college, and um, I mean, once I got saved, it wasn't just uh, a relationship that I had with God, which was key, it wasn't just that he had redeemed me, but it was like my entire thinking about everything was like turned upside down. I mean, just completely turned upside down. And why was that? Because uh, my thoughts prior to my salvation, were not really in line with God's thoughts. My, my truths were not God's truths. So even things um, as basic as realizing something that God cared deeply about things. And so I needed to care deeply about those things. And everything I was learning at college, up to that point, I was just like, oh, I'm, I'm just here to get a, a degree so I can do what I want to do. Um, after that, it was like, wow, I'm actually... All these courses that I'm taking, I'm studying. Whatever is revealed of God's truth, that's what I'm studying. Because all truth is God's truth. So here was my opportunity to learn. So it just, I mean, it it blew me away that the Bible had something to say about the subjects I was studying, even about math. I mean, I was just blown away. I was astonished that God's word had something to say about geology and geography and sociology. I mean, all these different things God's word addressed. And so, I mean, it went, I was going through a transformation. I'd already gone through a transformation in my heart, but now my mind was being transformed as I was learning truth in many ways for the first time. Um, this is why I think uh, church needs to be a place where this truth can go forth and where the questions that people have. I had a lot of questions when I first got saved. And I was very thankful. I remember um, one of the gentlemen that, that first discipled me. I mean, I'd be reading through the word, and I would write down question after question after question and would come to him uh, for our discipleship, and I'd have like literally like 50 questions written down each time. All right? And, we, and he was really gracious and worked through each of these questions. But, I mean, the church needs to be a place where people can, can come and ask those questions, right? It makes me sad when I hear stories about kids not feeling comfortable to, to ask questions at their church, to kids not feeling comfortable to ask questions of their parents. Um, I just heard the other day uh, very, the very thing that uh, uh, a kid didn't feel comfortable talking to their parents about some questions they had. Listen, parents, I mean, we need to make sure we give our kids a place where they can ask those questions without any judgment or condemnation or anything like that. Because once you do that, you're slamming the door shut, and there's not going to be any more questions. I can guarantee you that. So people need to feel 
really of all ages, that they can ask uh, questions. Um, when kids walk away at the, of the, from the faith, which the, the SBC, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, um, did a study, and they wanted to see what happened to uh, students that grew up in the Southern Baptist Church after they went away to college for the first year, and their study revealed that 80% of those kids had fallen away. 80%. That is crazy. Uh, but I believe the t- statistic. But here's the thing. I mean, a lot of those parents end up surprised, I think, when kids walk away at 15, 18, 20. I mean, they're like, where'd that come from? Well, it didn't just happen at once. They didn't just wake up one day. They didn't just hear some convincing um, atheistic argument. It is a slow progression. That's why I'm encouraging you to make sure the door is open for those conversations to occur. That they feel like there's a place where they can ask questions and you're not just going to jump on their case just because they're doubting. Listen, if anyone is is a believer in here, um, if you're honest, you've had your own doubts. You've had to struggle with your faith at times. So we need to be gracious and understanding um, if other people around us at times struggle with their own faith. And we need to show a lot of grace and compassion. Sometimes it's not just questions that they have uh, that are necessarily doubts, but just questions concerning the faith. And uh, one of the things we did this year at camp, um, which I thought was a great idea, I wish I could claim credit for, but it was really justices. Um, but we had a Q&A time uh, during, during some of our free time one day where I was in the chapel and um, the youth could come in and basically ask any question they wanted to. I think it started at like one o'clock and it was like one o'clock and I was in there by myself. <laughs> and I was like, well, at least we made it available to them. <laughs> I guess they don't have any questions. Uh, but then a couple uh, kids um, trickled in and then by about 1.15, 1.20, we had like 10 to 12 uh, youth in there. And for the next hour and a half, I mean, they just asked question after question after question after question. And we had some really good um, discussion. I mean, it was, I walked out of there very encouraged. I think uh, the youth did too. Uh, it just reminded me that we need to make sure we're providing opportunities like that intentionally, um, keeping those doors open so that we can give answers. There's, there's, there's answers right here, all right? It's not like uh, we don't have the answers. Now, maybe you might not personally have an answer to a particular question, but then you can find the answer, right? Um, I believe there's answers. I had a lot of ans- questions myself, um, and I did a lot of research. Um, I, I searched the things out. I asked my disciple, like I said. Um, so, All that to say, uh, the Bible gives us a proper understanding, really, for all of life, and specifically here, uh, for creation. Now, understanding the biblical view of creation helps you avoid serious error. Errors like pantheism. What's pantheism? It says God is creation. Errors like panentheism, which says the universe is in God, okay, then you get kind of like the new age turnaround on that, and it's like, you know, God, you, you kind of are God, right? Um, process theology, um, all these different errors, if we have a proper understanding of who God is and who his, what his creation is, we can actually 
take these things off the table, and maybe some of you already have. Now, when we look at creation, we're going to see a couple of things, but here's the key thing I want you to see. God has a love for his creation. He has a love for his creation. Look in Genesis chapter 1. Here's what it says. In the beginning, God created. Now stop right there. Once God takes action, by definition, the action is good. All right, once he takes action. Why? Because God is good. And whatever he does is a good thing. So he is intrinsically good. We can't, when, he, when he takes an action, we can't say that that action was wrong, that that action was unrighteous, that that action was wicked, that that action was a bad decision. No. Why? Because when he acts, he acts from his goodness. So it's a good thing. So it, it, once that word says something that he did, we know automatically, boom, it's good. What, what I'm seeing happen, I'm seeing this sadly with believers, unbelievers I can understand, but what happens is they're questioning why God did certain things. Now, that's fine if you're trying to struggle through something. There's some, there's some tough stuff in there. I get it. I had those questions, too. Um, but we have to be careful because what happens is, is we end up putting ourselves, we, we, we kind of flip the tables, and we put ourselves on the judgment seat, and we're judging God for his actions, which really is really the opposite of what we see in the scriptures. Really, God judges us for our actions, right? But isn't it ironic that that's, that's what our fallen nature wants to do, is it really wants to, to shake our finger at God and judge him for how he's acted. So it's like a role reversal. It, it's very twisted. Um, it's, it's demonic, and it's very fleshly. But, but that's what happens, okay? Now, there's a, there's a place where we can ask those questions like I referred to before, um, but we have to be careful that we aren't judging God. God judges us. We don't judge God. Okay. He's on the judgment seat, and we are the ones uh, that are on trial, so to speak. So when we see some action, um, usually in the Old Testament is, is what it's referred to, it, it might be hard for us to swallow. We might not be sure. Um, but we need to be careful that we don't start um, accusing God of not being good, accusing God of taking actions that are unrighteous. Okay. Again, there's answers to some of those questions that people pose. Um, but let's seek the righteous thing. And if we start with the premise that all God actions are good, which only a good God could do that, right? I mean, God can only do that which, of what he is, which is goodness. So all his actions are good. So it's important to start right, right there, four words in. We already know that what he's going to do after it is a good thing. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, it goes on, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. All right? Well, why is it good? Because he created it. All his actions are good. So he is recognizing the very thing that he created. The scripture is pointing out to us. God saw that it was good. 
we are going to get this a few more times, and I want you to see it each time in Genesis 1. Look down at verse 10. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So we get, we're getting this running commentary on God's opinion of what he's just done. It is good, it is good, it is good. Verse 18, uh, or 17, And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Verse 21, So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Verse 25, And God made the beasts of the air according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and God saw that it was good. And then the last time, verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So literally from the beginning of creation, we get this commentary over and over that God wants to communicate to us that his creation is good. And we can see that he is concerned and cares for his creation. He took great precision in it and creating it, right? We get this nice little description in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He has a vested interest in it. Why? Because he created it. Right? The artist has a vested interest in his artwork. Uh, the composer has a vested interest in her music. The architect in her drawing. The engineer in his design. And God has a vested interest in his creation because he created it. He loves his creation. That love is seen in his involvement with his creation. Look at Psalm 104. We're going to start in verse 5. It says, He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took the flight. The mountains rose, the valley sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. Do you see how he, I mean, he is intricately involved in what's going on here, okay? This isn't like Mother Nature or whatever. This isn't just nature taking its course. It's all, you did this. This is what happened. You did this. This is what the waters did. You did this. So, verse 10, you make the springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So this isn't some far-off God who, who just created everything and stepped back. Now, he's 
intricately involved with his creation. He makes springs gush, mountains and valleys have appointed places. He causes the grasses and gr plants to grow. He sends forth the water for the mountains. Okay, God is the one doing all of this. Look uh, at verse 24 here. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So the works here are everything that he's discussed so far, right? Sometimes scriptures talk about his works, and it's talking about like his mighty works, parting the Red Sea, right? All the miracles we see in the Old Testament. But sometimes the works are just the works of creation. So everything he's described before, and this is the exclamation of the psalmist, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them. So God created the world in wisdom. He did it in wisdom. Then it goes on further, verse 27. <clears throat> These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your faith, face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Now, previously, he'd been talking about the sea and the creatures in it and everything there, right? Who do they look to for God? Or excuse me, who do they look to for food? God, right? That's where they're looking for their food. He's the one that sustains creation. He literally feeds his creation. Um, God's interaction, look at verse 29, God's interaction with them actually affects their disposition. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. So God is in control of his entire creation from the very beginning of it to the very end for each animal, for each plant, for each person. So what is the culmination of all this? It's verse, really, it's verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. Now in 31, <clears throat> I don't think it's saying, uh, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. Like, man, I hope the glory of the Lord endures. I hope it doesn't fade out, right? Same with the Lord rejoicing in his works. Man, I hope the Lord rejoices in his works. That's, that's not the idea. Uh, it's, may the glory of the Lord endure forever, and we know it will. May the Lord rejoice in his works, and we know he does. It is a, a definite idea given, not any uncertainty that we might think. So the Lord rejoices in his works. He rejoices in what he has created. Uh, where else do we see this in the scriptures? Well, let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, verse 25, this is Jesus, it's the Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Now just pause there for a second because that's what kind of Jesus told us to do. Look at the birds of the air. And now he's going to make an observation. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds.
feeds them. So God feeds the birds of the air. It goes on. Are you of not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. Again, he wants us to pause. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. So he feeds the birds of the air. He clothes the lilies of the field. Why? Because he cares about his creation. So this is Jesus talking. And he's saying, my father cares about his creation. We see God providing nourishment for the birds so that they can feed and grow, nourishment for the flowers so that they can grow and bloom. Turn over to Matthew 10. We see a similar idea. It says in verse 26, uh, sorry, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Again, the idea, God knows his own creation, and nothing is going to happen apart from him causing it to occur. This is a benevolent providence that God has, a good providence, a loving providence. Other verses, look back in Psalm chapter 8. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So what sound rings throughout creation? That God is majestic and his glory is everywhere found. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The idea is consider God's works, right? Like meditate, think upon, reflect. That's what he's saying. When I look at your heavens, he sees how great God is and then what's the reflection upon himself? Uh, what are we, Lord, compared to you? Are we awestruck at creation and what God has done? We should be. Why does the Grand Canyon leave us speechless? It's an amazing, glorious God created it, and it reflects on him. Okay, He made it amazing. He could have made it any other way. He wanted his creation to reflect back on him, his glory. So he says in verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And the idea is like, who am I, Lord? Like, you made all this, and, and you care for me? Like, little old me, Right? Little old you, and little young you. I mean, in this psalm, we're seeing the greatness of God in the place of man in the universe. It goes on. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, 
and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So man has dominion, right? That's back in Genesis 1. We're given dominion from the very beginning. Right? Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the face of the earth. So as, as humans, we have a unique role in creation. We're not on the same level as animals and fish. In that sense, we're separate from the creation. Still a part of it, uh, but in a unique way. Uh, we are um, over creation because God has placed us over the creation. It goes on. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So how does this psalm end? Praising the Lord, which is a good way to react when we've just read what we just read and seen how amazing God is. Look at Psalm 92. It says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. So he's saying, back in verse 4, You have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. What is he saying? I'm praising the Lord for his creation, for the works of his hand. I turn a few psalms over to Psalm 111. We'll see a similar idea. It says, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. So we have a great description here of his handiwork. Now the psalm goes on, and it gets even more specific, and then it gets down to talking about the covenant that he has with Israel. But it starts out in the general of God's works, of everything that he has done. Everything that he has created, he's done it, and it reflects back on him. That's why when we look at creation, we see in Scripture that creation glorifies the Lord. We're going to look at two Psalms. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So creation, it declares how amazing God is. Uh, For whom does the songbird sing? It sings to the Lord. For whom does the lily in an unknown land bloom for that no eye will ever see? Unto the Lord. What about the rainbow that shines in an uninhabited place? Unto the Lord. One more psalm, Psalm 148. Starts out, verse 1, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded 
and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. I mean, think about that. I mean, here we have the, like a personification of these things. But I don't think it's just a personification of these things. I actually think that these things actually do praise the Lord because they are what God has created them to be. The sun shines. That's what God created it to be. That glorifies the Lord. Guess what? When we do what we're created to be, we glorify the Lord. So he created us to glorify him. And with his spirit, through the redemption of the blood of Jesus, we are able to glorify the Lord. The very thing we're created to do, we can do. That's what he created the earth to, to glorify the Lord. It reflects back on him who he is. What is the reaction of us? Well, the Psalms kind of show it. We've already seen it over and over again. Like, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, right? And then it talks about what he did, and then what's the ending usually? Praise the Lord. Like, he's amazing, he's awesome. That should be our response to what God has done in the abstract and in the specific. I want you to see the angels' reaction to creation. Look at Job 38. This is when the Lord answers Job. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now the focus here is really Job question, God putting Job in his right place by asking him these questions. But we, he, God makes this, this side mark, really, that here I am doing creation, right? And, and the angels, they look at it, and what is their reaction? They shout for joy. The morning stars sang together, all the sons of God, they shout for joy. They see the creation, right? They look around. And what is their reaction? To worship, to rejoice, to celebrate. And what, you know what? They're, they're just doing uh, what they see God doing, right? Because it's back to Psalm 104. He rejoices over his work. So it's not like he was just, you know, up there as some kind of stoic being, just, you know, creating. I mean, that, that is an incorrect view, okay? He's intricately involved, very much, eminently involved in his creation, right? And we see him being glad in his creation, taking pleasure in his creation, rejoicing over his creation. So it would make sense that the angels would see God doing it, and then they would do the same thing. So if God created the world, um, it would make sense if it would have his signature on it, right? It would make sense that design could be detected, and it is. This is what the scriptures show. It is right there for people to see. Look at Acts 14. This is Paul and Barnabas. They're out preaching the good news. 
It says this in verse 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. What was the witness? It tells us, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's one of the witnesses that creation attests that there is a God. The fact that the earth sustains us witnesses that there is a God and that he is good. Look at Romans 1. It says this in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. All right, you see that? God has shown it to them. He's displayed it to them. He's made it clear to them. We go on. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. All right, so you, you should be able to look out into creation, is what it's saying here, and recognize there's a creator. I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? Creation needs a creator. Um, sadly, it, it doesn't click with everybody. But God says they're without excuse. I mean, it can't get any clearer than creating an entire universe to attest to the fact that there is a God. If he wanted to attest to himself, that's a pretty good way to attest. Okay? He says they're without excuse. <clears throat> it goes on. 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So what does sinful man do? Suppress the truth. Deny the truth. Fight against the truth. But we see here clearly that God's creation shows to every single person, not just to the believer, but to unbelievers, that there's a God. And they might not like it, they might deny it, they might try to hide it, but it is there. It is there for them to clearly see. So even with the fallenness of the world, even with its imperfections due to sin, the signature of the divine can still be seen. That God exists is there for people to see. That's what creation points to. So what is God going to do? One of the things he's going to do is he's going to redeem his creation. Did you know that? He's going to redeem it. Look at Romans 8. In verse 18 it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, when I first realized this, when I first read this, I didn't even know what it meant. And probably even the second and third time. But God's going to renew his creation. He makes it perfect. Adam messes it up. He's just not, he's not, God's not just going to come and, and wipe it away. He's going to renew it. He's going to redeem it. And we get this just visual image of creation groaning in the pains of childbirth. Like it's longing to be redeemed. It's wait, it says it's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. What does that mean? For God to come back and claim us fully as his own. When he does that at the last trumpet, when he comes back to claim his bride fully, usher in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down, he is going to redeem the creation itself. I mean, if you thought, like, the Grand Canyon looked cool now, wait till you see it when it's redeemed. All right? Those beautiful mountains that you see from afar off when you're driving up way north, I mean, they're going to look even much more beautiful because creation, it says, has been subject to futility. And if we can see the beauty of creation, and if we can see God, that there is a God and that he exists in this fallen creation, how much more will it shout it out once it's fully redeemed? So look at Revelation, because I want you to see this for yourselves. Revelation 21. It says, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All right, you see that? All things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, go back in verse 1. It says, I saw new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, some people believe that that's talking about two different heavens and earth. Okay? I don't believe that. There's two different words for, uh, for new in the Greek. One means kind of to renew, and one means completely new, separate. And this is the renew word there. Okay? Also, it really wouldn't make sense, Romans 8, creation's crying out to be redeemed, and then God comes back and it's like, well, sorry, creation, see you later. I'm creating a whole new earth. Now he's recreating the earth the way it was originally, okay, just so you can understand. So the heaven and earth is coming down from heaven. Much could be said, okay? The tangible, the physical, created by God is good. It's good. Okay, Gnosticism was an early heresy. Um, it saw the flesh as evil. God doesn't see the flesh as evil, right? Not, not the this, okay? Not the, the tangible, the physical. He doesn't see that as evil. He sees matter as good. Why? Because he created it. And everything he does is good. So the Apostle John in 1 John, he's battling a form of Gnosticism called Docetism, which said and believed that Jesus only um, seemed to have a body. It only seemed to. 
Uh, why? Because the flesh was evil. The physical was evil. So we can't have Jesus having a body if we're thinking that the physical is evil. So this early kind of heresy, uh, the Apostle John's battling, that's why he says in 1 John 1, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. We've touched Jesus, okay? It wasn't some spirit, some phantasm or whatever. He was real. He had a body. Later, John says in chapter 4, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Okay, that was one of the tests. Do you believe he really came in the flesh? Yes or no? Okay, you can figure out the docetists from the true believers really quick. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. I know some muddle-headed Christians have talked as if Christianity thought that sex or the body or pleasure were bad in themselves, but they were wrong. Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, and that some kind of body is going to be given to us even in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, and our energy. Right? This God was willing to take on human flesh. He was willing to take it on. It, it, it's not evil. It is good. What does this mean for us? If God loves his creation, so should we. In big ways, we need to have an appreciation for it. We need to be uh, struck by the amazingness of it, in awe of it, at the wonder, right? But also in practical ways. I think um, us loving creation should be reflected in smaller ways as well, even in things like our home right? We keep it. We're like little creators, right? We're trying to be like God. So with our jobs, we're creators, inventors, designers. To the extent that we are, we're imaging God in that area. So do it well, right? I mean, think about Subway. What do they call themselves, like sandwich artists or something like that? I mean, even they understand in some loose sense, right? that what they're doing is creating something. So whatever it is, we need to do it well in our homes, at our works, in our jobs, at our church. It's also reflected in how we treat creation itself. We need to treat it well, okay? I'm not going to go all liberal and leftist on you and talk about how we need to save the planet. But we do need to save the planet. <laughs> we need to be good stewards of it. That means we don't take our old dirty car oil and just dump it in the yard next to us, all right? <laughs> Our neighbors won't like it for part of it. But we're good stewards of what he has given us, okay? So I understand that, that there's kind of one side that's kind, kind of wacko and extreme, and so what really I think has done is then we've kind of swung the other way because we don't want to be like them. But, <clears throat> and they are kind of wacko and extreme, but there's truth to what they're saying. I'd prefer that the fish I pull out of the stream I eat from isn't poisoned, all right? So I kind of appreciate some of the rules that are in place. I appreciate if someone's dumping oil in their yard, there's going to be a problem that the government has with that, okay? So it's reflected in how we treat creation. We are stewards, not just of money, not just of time, not just of talent. Yes, those things, but we're stewards of the earth. We're the stewards of the earth. He's given us dominion over it, and that doesn't mean we just 
trash the whole thing, right? You hear some of this bad theology, it's all going to burn anyway. Yeah, it might, uh, but we don't know when that is, okay? (laughs) So hold on. God gives us dominion over it. We're supposed to be benevolent rulers just like him. We're supposed to tend carefully to what he has given us. This should humble us. This should humble us. So we should enjoy his creation. Uh, Remember back to what we read in Psalm 104. It said, God gives wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine. Um, And it, it, it gives bread to strengthen man's heart. God wants us to enjoy his creation. Um, We have to be careful, obviously, not to swing to extremes, but part of our daily living should be enjoying his creation. Part of taking a day of rest should be enjoying his creation. He made the world for us to be wise stewards of it. And all of it, all of it, really, we should always come to kind of like where the Psalms come. It always comes back to praising the Lord. Okay, All of this should ultimately result in us praising God for how awesome he is. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your works that we see displayed everywhere. You truly are good. You truly are wonderful. You truly are awesome. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you rain down your mercy upon us. We thank you that we have the blessings that you give us, that we can enjoy your creation each day, Lord. And I pray that it would um, cause us to be good stewards, to be wise with it, Lord, that we would enjoy it in the way that you want us to, God. We thank you that you love us so much. We thank you for sending Jesus for us, Lord. I pray for the gift of salvation for everybody here, that you would impart saving faith to each one of us, Lord, for your glory, we pray. Amen.